Hi there, and welcome to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories with Amy Syed. This episode is brought to you by the Quantum Genius Program. Today, we're going to talk to someone who has a harrowing story of survivorship and thriving there afterwards. We do want to start by sharing a content warning. Information shared on our podcast can be graphic in nature, and we recommend that you review the details of our podcast before listening. We appreciate you tuning in, and we hope that the story shared with you today is inspirational and helps you get through tough times that you may be facing. Welcome again to Calm After the Storm. This week, I will be speaking to Blair kaplan Venables. Blair is a social media expert and the founder of the I Am Resilient Project, which focuses on sharing and curating stories of resilience to assist both readers and writers in their healing process. So to start off today, Blair, I want to talk a little bit about your childhood. Really, you know, walk me through, what did your childhood look like to you from your earliest memories? So I was born and raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I was born in 85. So picture it's the 80s in Manitoba. Everyone has, you know, their fur and their poofy hair. You know, I was the firstborn and I do remember being really close with my dad you know, used to go to the zoo with my dad and I'd spend time just adventuring around and making videos. But in elementary school, when I was about eight years old, my parents divorced. And I was one of the first kids with divorced parents. And I went to um, a Hebrew school and it was a small community. And I think one other kid maybe had divorced parents. So I thought I was going to have a life like him with two bedrooms and two homes and two families and it didn't really cross my mind about what was really going on. And it was that my father was living with addiction, but no one really ever told me that. And so I went from being a daddy's girl to um, still being a daddy's girl, but him not being in my life. And I thought he stopped loving me. I thought my dad went from loving me to not loving me. And when he said he would come to my birthday party or show up at you know, at our house, you pick me up to go to McDonald's for an hour and not showing up. I thought it was just, he didn't care about me. And it started to build a lot of anger and resentment. And I know there was a lot of great moments woven in throughout my childhood, but it's the ones that hurt the most that stay with me. And I'll never forget, um, right when my parents divorced, I used to have birthday parties at the roller rink. (laughs) And I love them. And I'm a terrible roller skater. So I don't know why I love them so much. But um, I remember my dad promising me he was going to be at my birthday party. And I remember like doing a lap of the roller rink and then sitting by the door waiting and doing another lap and waiting. And he just never showed up. And I think that's when there was a turning point when I knew that things were going to be different. But, you know, I, I didn't have the same experience as other kids I knew with divorced parents. I didn't know any other parents that had substance abuse problems. It wasn't something that we spoke about. I didn't really actually understand it till my 20s. Naturally, we remember negative things before we remember positive things. That's just the way our brains are wired. So oftentimes when we remember our childhood, it is easier to remember those painful moments. Also, in hindsight, as an adult, you start to realize how much those painful moments impacted your life. 
you know, following that experience and the fact that you're so specific and remembering that specific experience. Can you walk me through when you started to realize how much that experience really impacted you into your teen years and into adulthood? Yeah. Well, I went from having two dependable parents to a father who wasn't around and him being the, you know, main male in my life for the first part of my life. It really gave me trust issues. I, I had abandonment issues because I felt abandoned and I wasn't really sure of this. And honestly, back then in the nineties, therapy wasn't, you know, as prevalent as it is now. And you didn't really talk about your problems. Like I really think what happened was that I did develop this lack of trust with my dad. And as I got older, I didn't trust men. I, you know, I was just expect to be heartbroken and abandoned. I was always really worried if my friends liked me. I was always worried that the people in my life were going to leave me. And, you know, I do have memories of like always asking my friends if they're mad at me. And, you know, I am pretty confident, but I have some serious insecurities because of what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And when do you think you really realized, like, would you say you had a rock bottom moment? Well, um, like in my specific relationship with my dad, it was the birthday party was a pivotal moment in realizing where I stood in his life. Mm -hmm. And really my rock bottom moment in really understanding the damage that had been done was before I met my husband, I was with a man and it was an abusive relationship. And he had substance abuse problems. And I realized I was dating men, not everyone. Like if you're listening out there and you're an ex-boyfriend who's not like this, not all of them, (laughs) but um, I found comfort in the dysfunction. You know, dysfunctional relationships gave me comfort until I had a really bad experience in an abusive relationship. And he was mostly verbally abusive, but he put his hands on me and that's when I left him. And that's when I really started to change a lot of stuff about me. Walk me through how you did that, though. Like, it's very hard for some of our listeners to understand what leaving somebody means when they're in an abusive relationship with them, you know? So walk me through kind of what your thought process was. Where was it where you were like, this is a hard line, he's crossed, I'm leaving. And what did that look like to you? First of all, I I know I moved in with him sooner than I should have. I didn't fully know. I didn't know he had a substance abuse problem until after I moved in and I was finding empty alcohol bottles around the house and I knew it was a bad sign and I knew that I needed to leave. And when I moved in with him, we loved each other, but we didn't know if it was going to be forever because we were still a newish couple. And so when I saw the alcohol bottles, I knew that was a big red flag like in my mind knew that something was going to change, whether it was me leaving or him sobering up. And there was a couple times where like, I was left, you know, left at work because he was passed out drunk and then would wake up and I, we had two bedrooms and I'd go to bed in the other bedroom and I'd wake up to him yelling at me and calling me names. And like, that was not okay. And I knew that was not okay. And I would call him out on it when he sobered up and, you know, then he'd feel really bad and stop, drinking and then he would slowly introduce it back in his life and it happened a few times and after a few times I made the decision while on a family vacation like without him like with my mom and sister I was like I need to get out of this relationship and right when I got back is when he put his hands on me and I already made that decision I didn't feel trapped 
I just was so depressed because I was in an abusive relationship. I was unable to really maximize my income and I felt trapped because I couldn't make money and I couldn't afford to live. But when he put his hands on me, I called a bunch of people who have expressed interest in working with me and I, I managed to convince them all to write me a deposit, collected the deposits and went and got my own apartment. First, I was homeless. I was homeless for three weeks because I didn't want to go back to that apartment. And my new apartment, I got it, you know, three weeks later. And the, the landlord even offered for me to sleep in a different apartment on an air mattress. It was very lovely. But that was my literal rock, rock bottom in life was that whole experience. And I think also that's when I really started to understand my dad and his addiction, because that's around the time I started to get to know him. To get to know your dad. So your dad came back into your life. When did your dad come back into your life? Um, I should back up and say I'm grateful for Lululemon Athletica. I worked for Lululemon. I helped open the store in 2005 in Winnipeg. And then when I graduated from school, I studied public relations. I got promoted to work in Edmonton. And when I was there, because I had goals to move up within the organization, they sent me to the Landmark Forum in Vancouver. I went because I was like, oh, a free trip to Vancouver. <laughs> but really, I didn't know that I was somehow going to be downloaded and given the tools to forgive my father. And I remember having this epiphany moment. So I'm in my early 20s, something just clicks and I decide I am tired of being upset. I'm tired of being angry. I'm tired of thinking of all the ways it should be. And I decided to just accept and forgive and accept my dad for who he was. And I called him and we had this really beautiful conversation in a grocery store. When I say beautiful, I mean like I was sobbing my face off in public downtown Vancouver and my dad and I just turned a page and we continued the conversation later in the privacy of my own hotel room, but we just decided to develop a relationship. And I said, I'll accept whatever you can give me. And it was beautiful. I feel like my optimism and faith in humanity has been reaffirmed because I have always felt it's not too late to heal from a relationship like this. The reality is often it's hard for people to forgive this type of pain and there is beauty in this type of forgiveness. Believe it or not, I have realized that the moments of anger I feel around the death of my father are really feelings of abandonment. I know it wasn't my father's fault for leaving this world in my conscious mind. And if anything, he didn't want to and fought so hard to stay here. But the anger I have realized after years of self-work and therapy comes from the feeling of abandonment. When we are children, our minds cope with trauma differently than when we are adults. Based on maturity, we can make stories and memories to get us through the experience. Childhood trauma in this case can either cause memory loss, where you forget aspects of the trauma as a coping mechanism, or you cope by repeating what you know in adulthood. You see this with intimate partner violence that is witnessed as a child and brought into relationships in adulthood. In Blair's case, it seems her mother was a strong and supportive figure, and I suspect it helped her better understand her trauma, allowing her to heal into adulthood. So once you had this meeting with your father, were you were you already in, in communication with him? Yeah, we never stopped communication, but it was very surface level, like, hi, how are you? Happy birthday. You know, there was nothing further because... 
what was the point? But upon forgiving him, I moved from Edmonton to Vancouver and my dad lived in Winnipeg, Canada, for all you out there who aren't in Canada. And um, he decided he wanted to come see me and he got in his car and he drove from Winnipeg to Vancouver. My father came to visit and I remember him staying with me and I, he was staying on the couch. And I remember looking over and he was sleeping on the couch. I was like, this is so weird. I have a stranger in my house. Like he's my dad, but a, a stranger. I remember thinking, this is so wild. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So, so walk me through kind of the, the evolution of your relationship with your father. Did you ever talk to your mom about any of this? About how you were feeling and all that? Well, it's actually really interesting that you bring that up. One of my last trips to Winnipeg, I found a diary, an old diary I used to write in. And there's a couple pages in there where I talk about how people think I had depression, but I didn't know. I don't know. It was never like officially diagnosed. And fast forward to today, I'm 35 and I've been diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And I think the depression isn't something that's always here. I've had a really rough, you know, couple years, but it's interesting because I did have depression looking back at that, you know, as a child and like my, the stuff I was writing in my diary, you know, it's sad. And so my mom is, first of all, I'm an open book and I always talk to my mom about anything that we do because she worked really hard at raising me and my sister and worked really hard to give us a good education and a good life. And she's a phenomenal woman and I don't want to do anything to upset her. So as a kid, did I tell her I was upset? Yeah, I have memories of bawling my eyes out and like having full meltdowns because my dad didn't show up or he broke a promise. So my mom lived it. My mom lived it with us. It ripped her part, her heart apart. It ripped my heart apart and my sister. So my mom knew about everything. I didn't call my mom first and say, dad, I think I forgive dad. I'm going to call him. But it obviously came out after because I, I do tell my mom pretty much everything. That's so sweet. I love hearing that because, you know, I was a single mom at one time too, and I have twins and uh, they're 12 now. And they were telling me the same thing that, mommy, we just tell you everything, right? It's like the running joke in the family now because uh, my husband always says uh, they over communicate, but it makes me feel like a success as a parent, right? When your children want to come and tell you everything. So that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful to hear. And it's amazing that you always had your mom to have your back too, right? And be there for you. Yeah. And I just, I think I don't want to sound like my life was terrible. I am very privileged. I went to a private school. I went to summer camp. I had lessons. I had a really strong, supportive network of friends and family who helped raise me and my sister. And I just don't want to take away from anyone who's had a really terrible experience that wasn't as privileged. This is just of a course. story of my heartbreak with my father. Of course, of course. And and that's really what you're here for today, right? Is yeah. to talk about that experience. Yeah. And I mean, the heartbreak just continues. I mean, it's different. It's different pain now getting to know my dad. You know, we started off by just him telling me stories, explaining his addiction and how things happened and nothing was obviously consecutive. So there's been a lot of piecing things together, but also I'm an entrepreneur and he was too. He was a very successful diamond dealer and gemologist. You know, the 84 and 85 Stanley Cup rings, those tiny diamonds are from my dad. He was very successful, but his addiction took over and he sold his business. And so from a business standpoint, I'm trying to absorb as much knowledge as I can from him and from being an entrepreneur because he's a genius. 
So he may not be a good father, but he's a brilliant businessman. And, you know, so my relationship isn't something out of a, you know, <laughs> Friday night lineup or Disney. So let's talk a little bit about your father's addictions and how it shaped your views towards alcohol and drugs. Growing up, I didn't really understand the drug and alcohol part of my dad's mental illness. So I didn't really start to understand everything until my 20s, until I started to understand my dad. I knew about addiction, but I didn't really have anyone in my life that had a situation that piqued my interest to further investigate. So, I mean, I choose a life of sobriety right now. It's been almost two years. I haven't had alcohol and I've cut it out for various reasons. Um, But can you talk to us a little bit about those reasons, uh, the reasons why you cut it out? I watched it eat my dad from the inside out. So not only like did addiction breed a bunch of bad decisions, but it's killed him. It's literally killed him. Um, And, you know, he wasn't just an addict who, you know, he drank. He didn't even really drink. It was really hard stuff. It was, you know, cocaine and crack. And I can't even tell you a concoction of things injected. He was really unwell. And I didn't understand that until I was in my 20s. I don't think I really saw how it could affect me. Like my decisions weren't impacted by his decisions until I really started to understand addiction. And at the end of 2018, I learned that he was terminally ill. We learned that he had chronic pulmonary obstructive disorder. Um, we knew, knew that a while ago, but we learned that it was in the end stages. And he was given about a year and a half to two years left to live. And he was under further tests for a potential uh, lung transplant, but they discovered cancer on his lungs. The anxiety of knowing like he's going to die and I just got him back in my life felt very unfair. And I wasn't using alcohol to escape, but it was in. December. So I was going to tons of different holiday parties with free alcohol, but I would never be like, oh, I need to escape. But I'd have a glass of wine because that's what you why would do. And I'd feel better. And then I'd have another one. And then the next day I would just feel worse, like not only hungover and like making bad eating decisions. It was just really impacting my anxiety. So I decided I'm going to stop drinking on January 1st, like New Year's will be my last drink. And I actually ended up waking up on January 1st to an apology letter from my dad. Really? Yeah. And Tell me about that. Do you want me to read it to you? Oh, I would love that. If you could. If you'd share with us. Give me two seconds. Sure. Sure. Go ahead. So this is the letter that was in my email. Dear Blair, I want to take a moment to start this year of 2019 to write a brief letter of apology to you. In the mid-1980s, I became a drug addict and as a result became an awful dad. I apologize for all those times that I failed to arrive to pick you up for family time. Your mom dressed you up and you waited patiently at the door for me to arrive, but I never did. I repeated this awful traumatic experience over and over, not realizing that you were too young to understand. I had no excuse for keeping you waiting and wondering why your dad never showed up. You were the most important person in my life, 
and those moments tore me apart emotionally, and I continued to numb myself with drugs to ease the pain. I humbly and with guilt and remorse ask for your forgiveness for the wrongs and bad choices that I made in your formative years. Love, Dad. Wow. So you received this in your inbox. What happened next? I cried and then went back to sleep because I was hungover. (laughs) But it felt weird. Not bad weird, but just weird. You know, like not vindicated, but he acknowledged. He acknowledged to me in a way that I have proof. Yeah. But also like with empathy and it wasn't full of hot air. Um, so, I mean, I love that I have this because I have it and it really began a conversation with my dad and I about resilience and legacy. And we just talked about our story. And then what was happening was I was telling people about this letter and our relationship People felt empowered. I'd go for a coffee with a friend or a mocktail because then now I'm sober here. (laughs) And, you know, a friend would tell me a day after we met that she felt inspired and got a therapist or another friend would message me that she went across the country to forgive her parents or her dad. And, you know, someone else who I know is a social worker said that something I, you know, told her resonated and she shared it with one of her students. And I think it was helping me heal to publicly share my story. And my dad and I talked about it and he started, he was like, I think this might've been the first time he admitted that he lives with addiction. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause I don't ever remember him ever saying anything, but we decided that we wanted to maybe, you know, use our story as a way to help other people navigate their challenges. And this is our journey and forgiveness and acceptance and resilience play a key part. Mm-hmm. And we want to tell our story. And so I was like, well, let's write a book. I'll collect stories of resilience. We'll, we'll publish a book and our stories will be in there. My story and your story. And we'll put other stories in. He's like, I like that. I'm like, and it could be a legacy piece. And then the I Am Resilient Project was born. I have to be honest. In Blair's case, I think she and her father have done a magnificent job allowing for space to heal and foreclosure. Even if she ever felt things were unfair in the past, and perhaps today, I have faith that through their love for one another and understanding, they can make a lasting impact on each other's lives in the time her father has left. Closure is like getting an affirmation that everything is going to be okay. But it doesn't always come in these forms. A person writing to you, a person telling you what you need to hear at the moment of need, is amazing, but doesn't always happen. Sometimes we get the affirmation through other mediums. When my father died, because I was a caregiver for him, and I had immense guilt because at the end he was tired and I was tired, I used to feel immense guilt that I could have done something more. There were other circumstances around his death as well, but generally it is common to feel guilty after a parent dies that way from cancer. A few weeks after he died, a friend of his reached out to me and took me out for coffee. She explained to me that all of my feelings of guilt were unwarranted and how much my father loved and appreciated me. 
That moment has been etched in my mind forever and really allowed me to release myself from the feeling of guilt and that I did not do enough. And when was this that you launched that? So I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew. So I found out this news in December. I got the letter in January and I was feeling like there was something in me, but it wasn't like coming through. And I went to this like woman's or this creative retreat um, in the woods. It was really cool. And I did this like soulful, soulful entrepreneurship workshop and something there just resonated. And I woke up a couple days later. And it's like the idea literally dropped in. I was like, okay, I'm going to write a book. Dad, what do you think about this? All right, I'm going to make a website. And like everything just happened really fast and synchronized. And so right after I, right when I started writing the book, so I, I'm still working the I'm Resilient project. I decide to shift its focus, collect, collect stories and like slow it down. It wasn't a fast project. It was a slow growing, yeah. planting the seed, watering it, giving it its nutrients. Yes. So yes. while doing that, I decide to write a business book. And so I'm starting my business book. And what happened in like a high level over the last, you know, I, my plan was to have it out by December. Mm-hmm. But from March until December, like I lost my grandfather, who was like my father. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm so sorry. He was he stepped up when my dad couldn't. And he and I were very close. And he was in his 90s. So he had a great life. It was just still hard. And then um, on the way home from the funeral, my husband and I got in a car accident and I got a concussion. And I didn't really have a chance to recover because I was launching a product in Germany for a client. About a month later, I was um, rearranging my schedule so I can take some time off to heal and finish my book. And then my husband had a heart attack and quadruple bypass surgery. We lived in a hospital for three weeks. Well, he did. I went back and forth between friends' houses and hotels and family. But my whole life changed. And I let go of all the deadlines I set for myself. And also, while this is happening, my dad is dying. So I took a step back from managing my dad's health issues. Luckily, we have other family members who could step up. And I focused on my husband. And the I'm Resilient Project took a back burner. It was still like happening and stories were still coming in. But my main priority was being there for my husband. So the I'm Resilient Project, it's funny, actually. For 2019, I picked a word for the year. Yeah. And and the word I picked was resilient. Yes. And the universe really tested me. (laughs) I was like, God, get it. Really tested you. (laughs) I am resilient. I totally get it. I manifested it. But not the bad stuff, but that I'm resilient. Um. But yeah, I mean, my husband's fine now. He's recovered. And when he was able to uh, take a bit more care of himself, I was able to pick up on some of my projects, including the I Am Resilient project and finishing my book. Mm -hmm. And how's that been this year in 2020, where where the whole globe has been tried? (laughs) Uh, You know what? 2020 has been a pretty good year for me. Like, to be honest, it's been one of my best years. Amazing. I think it's because I've had some trauma happen and I've decided to reclaim my life. I'm very good at seeing the glass half full and I have had, you know, a little bit of a bumpy road, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. my husband's alive. I've gotten to see my dad a few more times this year. My dad and I actually had one of the most beautiful experiences. I, um, I asked him, what are some of his dreams? Like what's his bucket list? 
Yeah. And he said, a train ride across Canada. I'm like, okay, what about, what's the second thing you want? <laughs> He's like, a grandchild. I'm like, I'm trying. <laughs> what about, what about like a hockey game? <laughs> Do you want to maybe go to a Winnipeg Jets game? He's like, oh, I've never been to a hockey game. And so me and my dad went to a hockey game and we talked about sports and had hot dogs and drank coffee. And it was the most normal experience. It was what I envisioned my dad would be like. Yeah. And it was just so beautiful. And I felt very much like it wasn't closing a chapter because the chapter is never going to close. But it was just a milestone that I knew I, I didn't know I wanted to hit till I hit it. And I got to do that in 2020. Like. You know, my husband's back to work and he's riding his bike. I like to say my husband almost dying brought me back to life. That's inspirational, Blair. So I want to talk a little bit more about you had just listed off all these amazing things that are incorporated into the Resilient Project. But what I what keeps coming to my mind is like in resilience and forgiveness, there's this common theme of love. For me, at least personally, as I'm listening to you speak, can you talk a little bit uh, just for our listeners to hear about how they too can unleash love in moments of uncertainty or moments of real, real pain? I think what's really important is that we all need to realize that we have a resilience muscle. It lives deep within us. And we have to always be strengthening this muscle, just like your arm muscle. You know, you want to have a stronger arms, you lift weights and then you get heavier weights. And I think we as humans can train ourselves to be resilient without having to do it in the moment of having to activate our resilience muscle. And about five plus years ago, I was gifted a luxury wellness retreat. And part of it was I had a bunch of prerequisite like videos to watch and reading and whatnot. And I watched a video from Sean Acor, a TED Talk. And what I learned was that if you practice gratitude every day, at least you list three things from the past 24 hours that you're grateful for, and you do that for at least 21 days, you start to see the world in a more positive way. So I said, that sounds really easy. So I opened my phone. I set my alarm for 9 p.m. I called it the gratitude alarm. And every day since that day, it goes off at 9 p.m. And me and my husband and anyone I'm with, we list three things we're grateful for. And because I started doing that in a moment of curiosity, not in a moment of needing the tools, I am able to really, really able to navigate hard stuff. And I'm able to try and find the silver linings. But I do know that we humans are built to be resilient and we will get through it because I've been through stuff. You've been through stuff. And no matter what the situation is, our job is to be human, feel the moments and move through it and take those lessons and make our life better. So at the end of every episode, Blair, we ask, you know, people that I'm interviewing who they'd like to honor today and who they'd like to dedicate this episode to. So I want you to talk a little bit about that to me. I would like to dedicate this episode to my father. Um, I know he's still with us, but soon, you know, he's now in palliative care. And I feel like if I would have understood some stuff a bit sooner in life, things would have been a little different for him and for me. And I just want to dedicate this also to those out there who struggle with loved ones that have addiction. Um, you know, you're not alone. And it's okay to not be okay. And, you know, you're just doing your best. And just, I would say that whoever is, you know, dealing with addiction and, you know, they're in your life and 
you feel like they don't love you. They do. They do love you. They just, they're not well. So my, my heart just breaks for those people who have a parent or a child or a loved one that battles addiction. It's, it's really, really hard. Yeah, it is. And it's hard, I think, in the moment to also look at your situation and realize that that person isn't really who they could have been if they didn't have the addiction, right? Because in the moment it hurts so, so bad. You know, I'm at a point now because my dad checks in with me every day. He messages me on Facebook and we video call once or twice a week. But because I'm starting to understand it, when I talk to him on the phone, I know if it's him or if it's his addiction. Interesting. Like, it's really good to talk to my dad first thing in the morning. He's his best after he sleeps. And it's it's interesting. It's almost like two different people, right? Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Blair, for joining us today at Calm After the Storm Survivorship and Other Stories. We really, really appreciate you sharing with us and giving our listeners some really cool things to follow, especially that 9 p.m. gratitude alarm. Thank you so much for having me. And then if you're out there and you're interested in the I Am Resilient project, you can submit your story at IamResilient.info. We share our stories on social media and the website and through published books. And I invite you to come be inspired and share your story. I would say to the listeners that in a relationship, it takes two to tango. No matter what the circumstance and how unfair it seems on the surface, We can find it within ourselves to forgive out of love for others, but most importantly, out of love for ourselves. Thank you for listening to Calm After the Storm. The podcast is dedicated to telling stories about survivorship, healing, and thriving after trauma. Tune in next week to hear another incredible conversation. If you like this episode, support Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Calm After the Storm is created by me, Amy Syed, and produced by Quill Incorporated. Special thanks to our guest today, Blair Kaplan-Venables. Be sure to check out her initiatives at www.iamresilient.info or www.blairkaplan.ca